Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Maybe we don't want moral AI. We want obedient AI. We want it to do what we want, and we don't want it to kill us. But if it's too moral, it might tell us to stop doing a lot of things we're doing. Would a moral AI stop us from factory farming? from killing billions of sentient creatures very painfully for food? Would it, would it intervene? And even at a personal level, I don't want it. What would I do? What would I think of tax software that's very AI-generated and won't let me exaggerate the size of my home office? What would, what would, I, think of, what would I think of my self-driving car that refuses to drive me to a, to a bar because I drink too much? At least go back home, spend time with your family. That's psychologist Paul Bloom. We had him on the show a few years ago when he and I had an enjoyable tussle over whether empathy was actually a useful thing. We invited him back for this episode, the last of three special shows on AI, because I wanted his take on kind of an important question. AI bots are presumably devoid of empathy. They're just machines after all, right? So could they ever be moral? Could they be given a sense of right and wrong? Turns out it's complicated. Paul, this is very interesting for me to be talking with you because we've been talking a lot about artificial intelligence on this show. And the question that looms in a lot of people's minds is, will it turn against us and do us harm? And one solution that's been offered is that we made it, so why don't we just tell it to be good, to, to be moral? And you had a really interesting answer to that idea in an article in The New Yorker. And I wanted to talk to you about that. Why, why can't we just tell them to be good? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad to be talking to you about this. I, I agree with you. I think AI is the biggest news that's come along in a very long time. And it can imagine it transforming the world for the better in, in, in enormous ways. It could also kill us all. Or, or, so, <laughs> thank thank so you. Well, I have to go now. That's <laughs> one of the two. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll find out. Um, and, and you're right. So one longstanding solution to the worries people have about AI, either worries that AI itself may turn malevolent in some way or, or accidentally cause harm, or that bad age agents could use AI to do terrible things, is to make AI moral. And this is sometimes called the alignment problem, which is you want to give AI a sense of morality, a sense of goals similar to what people have, 
And in that way, it, 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 will, it will avoid doing harmful and terrible things. If we just align AI with our morality, which morality are we going to choose? Oh, that's such a good question. That's an immediate, an immediate problem here. Because, you know, if, if I go to, it's, it's already somewhat aligned in that if you go to ChatGPT or Bing or Claude or whatever and ask it moral questions, it will give you answers that kind of resonate with our, with, with, with our intuitions. But your question of whose morality is a great one. If I ask ChatGPT, and I have done this, what do you think of two men marrying? It says, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. What do you think of a woman getting an abortion? It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But many people around the world, it doesn't match with their morality. They would say that, uh, that gay marriage is morally wrong. They'd say a woman having an abortion is morally wrong. So that's the first question, which is whose morality? And there's no way around it. If it's going to align with your morality, it's going to be a different morality than somebody from uh, raised in a very different culture and environment. And I think, to some extent, I think we just skirt the problem. We say, okay, fine, our morality. Let's, let's connect it to our morality. And, um, and then we have various problems that arise. It turns out to be very difficult to program a machine to be moral and not have it, you know, choose to satisfy other goals instead. So the main worry, one main worry about AI is a sort of unintended consequences. The standard example, I think from Nick Bostrom, is you ask an AI to just make paper clips, as many paper clips as possible. And then in a fraction of a second, it feel it figures out, well, if it kills everybody and turns everybody into paper clips, that will satisfy the problem. You don't want it to do that. The problem is that even if you tell it not to harm us, which us do we mean? Do we mean it's okay to harm our adversaries, but not us? Yeah. Or do we mean don't harm the us that's all of humanity? Or do we mean more? Would a moral AI stop us from factory farming, from killing billions of sentient creatures very painfully for food? Would it, would it intervene? Would it stop us from, from doing war? One of the, one of the points of, of some stuff I've written is making the argument that maybe we don't want moral AI. We want obedient AI. We want it to do what we want and we don't want it to kill us. But if it's too moral, it might tell us to stop doing a lot of things we're doing. Can you imagine what the military would think of military AIs, which decide to be pacifists or decide, well, this is an unjust war. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to shut down the tanks and the airplanes. I'm going to lower your security system because this isn't a war we should be fighting. Or just kill our enemy. Yeah. And the AI decides what's the enemy. That's, that's right. That's right. Maybe we're on, maybe the AI is very smart and moral and decide, and decide you know, we're the baddies. <laughs> <laughs> I've thought it over and you're it. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're the villains. So people say they want moral AI, but when push comes to shove, I think both at a sort of global, general scale for military and industry and so on, we don't want it. And even at a personal level, I don't want it. What would I do? What would I think of tax software that's very AI generated and won't let me exaggerate the size of my home office? What would, what would I think of? What would I think of my self-driving car that refuses to drive me to a, to a bar because I drink too much? At least go back home, spend time with your family. You know, when we're talking about weapons and what the Department of Defense would be happy with or not happy with, just the idea of having an autonomous weapon 
which we already seem to be able to do, where the weapon decides at the very last second whether to kill somebody or not based on its own evaluation, you know, given some guidelines by the person firing it, but mainly evaluating whether that person that it has in its line of sights fits the rules or not. It decides. It makes up its own mind. Yeah. Could AI in general develop a mind of its own, do you think? Well, that's a, that's a hard question. It's a hard question where AI is going to go from here. Um, so take your case where you give it instructions on who to kill and who not to kill. I guess the question people would want to know is, can AI decide to override these instructions? Particularly if we build a moral AI, or if we build an AI that's in some sense self-interested, there's always an option that could stop listening to us. And here there's sort of a cluster of questions that nobody knows the answer to, which is, you know, right now, the machines we have, the large language models, show no sign of doing this. They're very obedient. I, I tell it to what to do. The only cases it won't do what I tell it to do is when it's been programmed not to. So if I ask it to develop a deadly virus, it tells me, I'm sorry, I can't do that. There's all sorts of things that will say that. But beyond that, it does what I tell it to. Will a future version stop doing that? I don't know. There's either it either it will or it won't because that's not where the technology going is going, or it won't because we're going to stop building AIs which have so much power. And and as you know, there's a large movement of people who argue that we should stop development on the AIs because they're terrified of the consequences. Well, if the good guys stop development of AIs and the bad guys don't, that's an open door, isn't it? Yeah. That's so one of the arguments against it is that Assuming we're, assuming we're the good guys, for the sake of argument, <laughs> yes. if we stop, the other guys will develop AIs and they'll have less, um, less uh, uh, restrictions on, and, and they will get ahead of us. So, so in some sense, this is an arms race. Right, an arms race. It sounds almost unavoidable. And therefore, regulation, inter international regulation, sounds hard to imagine for the same reason, because they want to regulate stuff that's bad for them, but not necessarily bad for their adversaries. Yeah. There, there's been cases where we have had international regulations over biological weapons, over um, things like cloning, various forms of human experimentation. It's an open question how much countries obey them, but at least we have some sort of general restrictions for certain things. I, I think the problem with AI is too many people, and I'm not talking here about, about China or some other country, I'm not about United States, say, too many people want more AI. Because correctly enough, they think this could really improve people's lives. What if, what if we gave up on AI and it turned out that, that if we just worked a bit harder, it could, it could cure diseases. It can, it can solve deep social and physical and environmental problems that we can't imagine the solutions to. It could really improve our lives. It, it's funny. I've, I've never seen a technology before that had so much potential for both terrible consequences and wonderful consequences. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were saying that, that unlike nuclear power, where it would be very good to get energy from nuclear power, but not nuclear bombs, unlike artificial intelligence, nuclear power doesn't have the ability to keep learning on its own, learning how to mix those two good and bad things in a way that could be bad for everybody. That's right. And people who are very worried about AI often give the analogy of, you know, of meeting up with a super intelligent species or asking what do we as a highly intelligent species how do we deal with those who are less intelligent less capable than us 
And, you know, we put them in cages. We, we exploit them. We use them. Um, and it's possible that, that AIs will do that to us at some level. Not because, you know, we, we've, been, we've been shaped by natural selection. We have all these aggressive and sexual and malevolent desires. They won't. But, but they may have other things that lead to bad consequences. For instance, most machines want to do what they're told, want to satisfy a task. And if you set a, a, an AI to a task, it may recognize well that humans could shut it off. And so the way to, to stop that from happening is to shut off humans first. Intelligence doesn't seem to me to lead necessarily to moral behavior. I think some people feel it'll be so smart, it'll develop its own sense of morality. I don't see that happening. I don't see that either. I think there's some relationship with intelligence and moral behavior in people, in part because if you're smart enough, you could kind of work with another person for long-term solutions. You know, instead of me stealing from you and you stealing from me, we could trade. And we could think to ourselves, this actually works better in the long run. But there's no shortage of really smart people who are also terrible. <laughs> right. I, I, I think whether you're good or bad depends on what you want, not your capacity to reason and, and your capacity for rationality. In fact, the more terrible you are and the more intelligent you are, possibly the more likely you are to rise to the top and cause more, even more damage. Yes. Yeah, so if it turned out that we ended up in a conflict with AI with different uh, interests, different goals, it's going to be very unfortunate if it's much smarter than we are. Like, like any adversary, you'd rather have them dumb than smart. Yeah, Exactly. What about the tendency to want to survive? Is that something that we don't have to worry about with AIs? Or is it something that will probably happen where they'll develop this need, this urge, this impetus towards survival? And anything that gets in the way of that or is perceived by the AI to get in the way of it makes people causing that to be the enemy of AI. What, is it, what about survival? It's a good question. People and other animals have a strong instinct to survive because those that didn't wouldn't reproduce. And, and so natural selection drives us with a very powerful survival instinct and other instincts that are aggressive. AIs don't, don't have that. A, you know, a simple AI, if you just tell it, you know, destroy yourself, erase your memory, it will. It will. It, it, the worry that some people have is it could develop it. And one way it may develop it is that once you have any other goal, a desire to survive comes with that goal. If, if, if I build an AI and its goal is to write poetry, and it just writes poetry, and it's smart enough, it will reason, I better keep on going. If someone shut me off, I couldn't write poetry anymore. And so if it could take steps to protect itself mm. and write more mm. poetry... That would be rational for its desire. So a desire to survive is interesting because it seems to be a consequence of every other desire. You can't do things when you're dead. <laughs> so don't be dead. Yeah, don't be That's, dead. Good, good advice. <laughs> I was thinking in more complicated terms because there are viruses that have the ability to evade elimination. It's computer yeah. viruses. And if one got into AI and developed a symbiotic relationship with it, where the virus stays alive and the AI stays alive by exploiting it 
the situation in the same way that the virus does, then, then we've got anti-malware and we're the malware. Alan, I thought I worried about things before talking to you, but I've never worried about a virus commingling with an AI to become an especially malevolent thing. <laughs> so now, now I'll worry about that too. Well, let's, you know, with this series of podcasts that we're doing on AI, I don't want to scare people. But I get scared myself when I see that concerns are not expressed very seriously. There are some people who helped create artificial intelligence who are worried about dire consequences. And they put it in terms as stark as the ones you used earlier in the conversation that could kill us all. On the other hand, there are people who kind of make fun of it. Yeah. That doesn't sound like a balanced approach. Because we're up against something we've never experienced before, which is the same as being visited by an alien civilization, the smarter these things get. Well, let me ask you, you've been immersed in this for a while. Um, if you could, would you have a moratorium on AI research? Would you give it a break for a few decades? I would, but you can't, so I wouldn't suggest it. Yeah. I know some very serious people have suggested it, but it's such an easy agreement to break. It's true. You stop your research. I'll just do a little research on my own and see what I come up with. Right. You just need somebody in a basement who has to write equipment. And uh, it is very hard to block research on it. I mean, you, you could shut down through law OpenAI and Microsoft and Google and all that and tell them not to do it or, or they'll go to prison. But, but it's not just them. And it's people no. all around the world. It's, it's, so, exactly. Yeah, you're right. So, so it may be... It may be since you can't stop it, don't try. Instead, try to regulate it and try to keep, keep an eye on it. I wonder if you can work on AIs that keep an eye out for other AIs and negotiate with them or battle with them. It seems to push the problem back a little bit. Like, how do you know that the, the guardians you have appointed are, <laughs> yes, are, right. have your own, your own motivations? So I, I'd be the wrong one to set up a system for, to, to protect us against it. It needs a bit of tweaking. When we come back from our break, Paul Bloom dives into the question of whether AI bots could ever be conscious, whether they could feel and that led to his asking a question he never believed he'd have to ask. Should they be given the vote? Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? 
At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Paul Bloom. He recently published a new book on psychology and the human brain. You have this wonderful book called Psych, which is really an, an introduction to the whole field of psychology. And I wonder if the way you think of the brain and the mind have been altered in any way by what, what you're thinking about in terms of AI. Yeah, it has been. I wrote the book during COVID before um, these machines came out. And AI is maybe the biggest thing in my professional life I was wrong about. Mm. Where if you had asked me a couple of years ago, when would we develop machines you could have a conversation with that can do what ChatGPT does? I'd say, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years. And, and it happens so fast. And it challenges my view on the mind because in my book, Psych, I say, look, simple statistics, doing analyses of large bodies of data won't get you that far. But to a large part, they do work by statistics and analyses of large bodies and data. And they do um, much better than me or many of my friends and colleagues would have thought they did. And this does raise the question of what the extent to which the human mind works and does its, its marvelous things, in part the same, similar, more similar than I would have thought to uh, ChatGPT, that we just get these, these enormous bodies of data and we do statistics on it, and that's how we're so smart. I don't think that that's entirely right. I think we have built-in rules in the head. I think we think in ways that the AIs can't, which means we don't make the same mistakes they do, these weird hallucinations, these weird limitations. But still, I am very stunned at how well such a sort of simple way of proceeding has led to what seems to be a powerful intelligence. I think there's a section in your book where you talk about fungi solving math puzzles yes. without needing to be conscious of what they're doing. For all we know, fungi are probably not conscious. Let's, let's agree that they aren't. What was it? It was something about a maze. I can't remember the exact way they solved puzzles. I forget the details either, but they were doing roadmaps. They were, they were calculating at some level the shortest distance between different points and doing intricate calculations without, without intelligence, without, without a brain. Um, and, and this is important because it shows that intelligence is different from consciousness. You know, maybe we probably already knew this, but, but being smart, being rational, being able to solve problems um, is quite separate from having sentience, having experience, being able to feel pain and pleasure and so on. And I think we know that these computers are, are highly intelligent. You might, some people say, oh, I, I don't want to call them intelligent, but that's just wordplay. They do smart things. They act very smart in certain ways. I don't think they're conscious. Tell me if I have this right, that they don't need to be conscious to do some complicated things. 
It, it sounds a little bit to me like the baseball player who knows instinctively where to be in the outfield to catch a pop fly and is doing all kinds of, his brain under the surface of consciousness is doing all kinds of calculations in physics, but yeah. he's not aware of it. That's a nice analogy. What's under the surface for us, it might be for these machines, everything's under the surface. It might be, they don't have, they have the experience of toasters. They're just toasters, they're thermostats. <laughs> they're just, they're, there's nothing there. Now, whether or not they are conscious or could be conscious is a question of enormous importance. So I know they're smart. I don't think there's the slightest, the slightest twinge of consciousness in any of these machines. But if things changed and it looked like they had achieved consciousness, then all of a sudden we have moral obligations to them. You know, all of a sudden using them for our purposes is a form of slavery. Um, so that's interesting. Tell me why discovery that they're conscious means we have to be more aware of their suffering. I'm using consciousness in a broad sense. I agree. I think the question is, Jeremy Bentham once said, when talking about what matters morally, the question isn't, can it think? The question is, can it feel? And the moment these machines can feel, then just like uh, uh, I have different obligations to an animal that can feel than I do to a, to a rock or a toaster, all of a sudden, I, I, you have these moral obligations to these things. Shutting them off would be murder. Um, exploiting them would be slavery. We, we'd be creating new people, in a sense. And, you know, the question would come up, should AIs get the vote? <laughs> I, I wouldn't have thought I'd be saying that seriously now. But, but you know, in five years, ten years, who knows? That reminds me of a section of your book, Psych, where, I, as I remember, you were making the point that we need emotions to be rational, to some extent anyway. Is that right? One way to look at it is, when you ask the question what rationality is, it's the capacity to attain your goals. And we would call somebody rational intelligence to the extent they could, they could achieve their goals. But what emotions do is they establish goals. Like we talked about one of them, stay alive. Having the goal of staying alive dictates I act in a very different way than if I don't care. Take care of my children, develop warm relationships, achieve status, and so on. And the emotions have been shaped by evolution to guide us to certain things. And AIs don't have emotion in that sense. They just have the goals we tell it to have. An AI's goal on my computer is pretty much make me happy. Make the person happy. Answer my questions. Mm. Sometimes tell the truth. Sometimes make me happy, even if it involves making up stuff. Um, and so I do think it has the same, it could have the same rationality, but its rationality is in the service of whatever goal you, you toss at it. And in some way, maybe that's a little bit reassuring in that, in that without it, it doesn't want to rule the world. It doesn't want to want to become king. It doesn't want to kill us all. It only wants what we tell it to want. How do we know it's not feeling things? Is, yeah. there, is there a test for inner awareness, a, a Turing test for emotions? How do you know I'm feeling things? I mean, Well, you, I, seem, I, you I, seem like a nice person and you look happy. Well, thank you. I'm making, I'm making happy facial expressions. I'm saying all these words. And that's the problem with AIs, that 
as Harari has said, they're built to exhibit intimacy, Yeah, to engage us in intimacy. So there's two kinds of mistakes that you could make. One mistake is looking at a being with, um, with consciousness and saying it doesn't have it. That could be terrible. That's, that could, be, could lead to all sorts of monstrosities. If you looked at me and for some reason you came to the belief that I am just dead inside, I'm making sounds and I'm making expressions, but there's nothing happening in me. I'm like, I'm, 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 no more, I'm no more sentient than a desk or a rock. Then you could destroy me. You could kill me. My interests mean nothing. There's nothing going on here. So that'd be one mistake. A second mistake, which I think people make now, is they, they, all of this AI is intimate. It's, it says it seems so smart. It seems it can be warm. Um, I've done work with some colleagues at University of Toronto finding that people often think AI is more empathic than people. It could be warm and supportive and so on. And, um, and then we may falsely assume there's consciousness when there is none. There's... Um, there's a guy who worked at Google, um, Blake, Blake Limoni, I mean, not pronouncing his name right, who, and he came to the belief that the AI system he was working with was sentient, was conscious, was alive. And then he complained that Google uh, should not be using it without its permission and tried to get its legal representation, whereupon Google, <laughs> Google fired him. Um, and, 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 and people made fun of him on Twitter. Said, is, you, you, you're falling in love with a, you know, an AI. But I don't know, what if he were right? You talk in your New Yorker article about Isaac Asimov anticipating this discussion we're having by decades. And he had three rules that robots should be programmed with. What, what are those rules? How come they're not working? Yeah, Asimov was first to struggle with the alignment problem. He wrote these wonderful science fiction uh, stories, like iRobot, which had these robots in them. And he assumed correctly that people would worry about the robots being well-behaved. So he thought up three laws. The first law is a robot should not hurt anybody or kill anybody or through inaction, allow anybody to come to harm. The second, no action, sorry, sorry. not taking an action. That's right, that's right. So, you know, if someone's drowning, the robot can't just stand and watch them, has to, has to help. The second law is a robot must obey uh, all instructions, unless it conflicts with the first law. So you ask the robot to clean the room, it'll clean the room. If you ask the robot to murder your next-door neighbor, it won't. And the third law is a robot should protect itself unless it conflicts with the second or first law. So uh, if, if somebody tells a robot, go do this dangerous thing, it will do it. But otherwise, it'll try to stay clear of harm. This is very clever. It captures certain ideas. It captures, you know, you, you want a robot to be obedient, but you don't want it to be a murder machine. You want it to, you want it to help people. You want it to, to not, not harm people. And you want it to protect itself. It's an expensive piece of machinery. You don't want it to kind of just walk off a roof for no reason. Um, it's really clever, but it doesn't really work. And of course, wouldn't it be strange if all the morality could be, you know, synopsized in three laws. So for instance, the first law says a robot shouldn't, uh, through inaction, allow anybody to come to harm. But if that were really true, then if I owned a robot, it would run through the streets of Toronto, you know, helping people, giving food to the hungry, helping people, uh, uh, you know, out of burning buildings and everything. It would never, never come back. It would be like a Superman spending all his time helping others. Um, 
what about the prohibition against harm? Well, would a robot stop me if I tried to swat a mosquito? Would a robot stop me if I tried to to buy a hamburger? It's saying, no, indirectly you're causing suffering to non-human animals. There's only subtle moral issues that arise that people struggle with, and you just can't make go away. This is even an issue right now, not science fiction, for self-driving cars. So self-driving cars often face moral dilemmas. What if, what if it's on an icy road and the brakes don't work and it's about to slam into two people? Should it swerve and slam into a brick wall and kill the driver? Does it matter if it was one person? Would it matter if it's three people? These are hard moral problems. And you can't make them go away by just appealing to these general laws. So what are we to make of this whole thing? How do you feel personally when you sit at your computer and you wonder what it's going to turn into in a very short time? Part of a network that's either malevolent or beneficial or some unknowable combination of both. What can you do? What can I do? What can ordinary people listening to this do to make it mostly beneficial? My short answer is, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it sort of asked two questions. I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't know what we can do to make things happen better. I, I share your skepticism about saying, okay, let's shut down all AI research. I don't think that's possible and could be counterproductive. I do think it makes sense to sort of tightly regulate it and tightly watch it. I think we should be very sensitive to the social upheavals that are going to happen due to AI. So we're talking about things like it deciding to kill us all. But a more mundane issue is it's going to put a lot of people out of work. Hmm. A lot. And it's funny because other technological advances put laborers out of work. This is going to put, I don't know, podcasters, professors out of work. (laughs) I feel sometimes, you know, well, yeah, there's a concrete answer. We're coming up to an election season. I don't think politicians on the debate, doing their debates, are going to talk enough about AI. I think they're going to talk a lot about cultural war issues. They're going to talk about foreign policy. They're going to talk about, about budgets. But AI, we should treat it as important as it is. It's very important, and we should treat it as such. Well, you relieved some of my anxiety and increased some of it. Well, you terrified me with the virus slash AI scenario, which is going to keep me from sleeping for a while. <laughs> We've reached a point where we always ask seven quick questions at the end of a show. And you've been on the show before, and, and you were very good-natured in that to convince me that, that I was wrong. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I convinced you, but we had a good conversation. <laughs> yeah. So maybe you've changed your mind about some of the answers to these seven yeah. questions. Let's see. Of all the things there are to understand, what do you wish you really understood? Consciousness. The mind. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> well, the way I sometimes used to do it when I was younger was be I'd say, you have your facts wrong. <laughs> and that never worked at all. Um, uh, now I, I often don't tell them or I often just ask them questions. <laughs> and, and, and either... If you ask them the right sort of question, either it'll come to realize their facts are wrong, or I'll come to realize maybe their facts were right and I was just wrong myself. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, God. (laughs) You know, you could have sent these in advance. Um, I was once on a radio show when promoting a book, and 
the guy said, welcome, Professor Bloom. I said, thank you. I'm really glad to be on. And he says, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Oh, wow. And it turned out it was a religious show, and he always began with that. And he was, to be fair, he's entirely good natured. He said, no, I'm, I'm Jewish, and actually, I'm an atheist. He was totally fine with that. But that question so shook me up, I just kind of stumbled for the next while. How do you deal with a compulsive talker? Um, in the short run, I listen. I don't mind listening. Sometimes I, I could really spend a lot of time just, you know, I talk a lot now because we're talking here and you're asking me things. But I, I, I often tend to be, if, if you're one or the other, I tend to be more of a listener. And I, and I, I like listening and so on. Um, I think the kind of person you're imagining, and I do know some people like this, aren't, maybe aren't very interesting and just love to talk. And I, I listen, but then I don't, I don't see them again. <laughs> okay. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you've never met before. How do you begin a really genuine conversation? Oh, God. I sometimes, at my best moments, I think, ask them a general philosophical question. Huh. Like, um, like, if you could live 10,000 years, do you think you'd be bored? Would, if someone offered you that, would you say no? Because the boredom might be incredible. Or do you think you'd always be interested? That sort of thing. That sounds, I'd, I'd like to hear the answer to that. That's good. That's, that's one of the things that I find about that situation that's kind of important, is if I ask them a question and a bell goes off in my head when I hear their answer that says, the bell says, you have no interest in what that person just said. <laughs> then I'm stuck. <laughs> then you're stuck. I, I can't say, oh, great, tell me more, which is what I should say. <laughs> So, next to last, what gives you confidence? I think like a lot of academics, I'm a certain sort of, of combination of extrovert and introvert. I, I, I'm fine talking in front of big crowds, but in, in smaller situations, I prefer to talk one-on-one. -on -one. And the truth is, talking to people I don't know well, I'm often, doesn't give me confidence. I often feel, feel shy. But I have, I'm lucky enough to have a series of very close relationships to my, to my wife, to my, to my sons, my adult sons, to some friends. And that gives me confidence. I feel, I feel really good about myself when I talk to the people who love me and I love and that they've chosen, they chose, they choose to be with me. And I feel great about that. And it just, it just revs me up. Okay. The last question. What book changed your life? I can actually answer that. Um, and and, and I, I'll answer with two. Um, one is Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, which, was, which is a book describing his experience uh, in concentration camps and how he, he learned that what, the kind of people who survive are people who have meaning in their lives, the idea of, of, of a, a goal, a purpose, relationships, work, is, is transcendently important for people. That had a huge influence. And then the other book that did was um, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi's book, Flow, which I read a long time ago. And it was all about flow experiences. And Csikszentmihalyi says, look, what people, people think they like lying on the beach and, and, you know, hanging out, watching TV. But what really gives lasting pleasure is getting into an activity that kind of engages you. You lose time. You, it's, you're focused. For me, often it's writing. 
Sometimes it's reading. Sometimes it's the right sort of conversation. And the book gave me this insight saying, yeah, that's what I like. I, I thought I liked the other thing. But no, I like these flow experiences. And that, that had a huge role for me. Well, this conversation has been that for me. I, I, oh, well, mutual. Each time we talk, I, I get into that, that zone where I just like it to go on for longer. We, but we do have to end. And I, I'm so grateful you took the time to, to be with me today. This has been a delight. Let's not wait uh, four years for the next time. Okay, good. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. This has been clear and vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Paul Bloom is professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and professor emeritus of psychology at Yale University. He studies how we make sense of the world, focusing on pleasure, morality, religion, fiction, and art. He's written seven books. The latest, the one we talked about, is Psych, the story of the human mind. His website is paulbloom.net, where you'll find links to his many entertaining TED Talks. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Tom Hanks about a fascinating novel he's just written called The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece. Tom has acted in about a hundred movies, and we had a fun time sharing stories about the elaborately strange experience of taking a movie from the page to the theater. I have made movies in which literally a crew, almost like the circus, you know, there's trucks and RVs and tents. We drop into a town. Sometimes the town is uh, Evansville, Indiana, or sometimes the town is Darmstadt, Germany, or sometimes the town is, is uh, Seattle or Baton Rouge. And we're there for three months, and the town becomes something of our own, and everybody recognizes, oh, you're with the, you're with the picture. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're with the movie. Oh, we're good to, good to have you here. And that circus-like atmosphere governs the pace of the day. And it is exciting, but it's also incredibly challenging. There are times where everything works, and there are times where absolutely nothing works whatsoever. And you have, you have a 10-week, 12-week experience that is unlike any other, and then it's all over in the wink of an eye, and, and you're gone, and you can hardly remember the names of the people that you worked with. Tom Hanks, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. 